Both the savvy shopper and the cynic think they know everything there is to know about malls. They think the layout is reliable and predictable. No matter which one you go to, you'll find a Forever 21 or a Foot Locker. You'll be able to buy a soft pretzel or, if you're lucky, a Cinnabon. And over time, one national chain replaces another, one anchor store fills another slot, and life goes on uninterrupted. This is not a predictable mall story. Mondawmin is not a predictable mall. Ask around, we did, and you'll find that almost everyone has something different to say about it. Opened in 1956, it's considered the oldest enclosed mall in the country. And for the most part, with a few store exceptions, it was integrated. This was six years before the Civil Rights Act was signed into law. A black man, Mr. Willie Adams, once owned a significant amount of real estate housed inside it. A black woman, Miss Marion Wesley, was named manager of the shopping center in 1979, making her one of, if not the only, black female general manager of a mall in the country. Even one of its early developers, Mr. Anthony Hawkins, was black. Mondawmin was one of the first malls ever to serve a predominantly black inner city community. And as a result, it became a very early proving ground for black entrepreneurship in the city of Baltimore. There's no place like it. Of course, many outside of Baltimore have come to know Mondawmin due to much more recent history. On April 27, 2015, about an hour after Freddie Gray's funeral, police in riot gear faced off against children from several nearby schools surrounding the mall. And by nightfall, looters stormed the mall and pockets of chaos had erupted for miles around. But Mondawmin can't be defined by a single day. It can't even be defined, as so many malls are, by its map and store directory. Mondawmin Mall is defined by people. It's defined by a community that remembers it back when it housed more mom and pops than faceless corporate box stores. It's defined by those moms and pops that tenaciously remain, even as the place gets a little more unrecognizable as its old self every year. And it's defined by patrons and neighbors who aren't going to let gunshots, fisticuffs, or fire erase 60 years of history. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City. Episode 7, Mall's Fair in Love and War, or Mall's Well That Ends Well. It was a cornfield? It was a cornfield. Oh. The hunting lodge was up there, and it was a big cornfield, hmm. and the woods and everything. That's Mr. Tom Saunders, historian and owner of local landmark tour company, Renaissance Production and Tours. We called him during our episode planning meeting, and he told us all kinds of things right off the top of his head, including that the word Mondawmin means cornfield. We jumped backward and forward in time. Yeah, yeah, because of the gentrification is why it's fixed up and remodeled now. But initially, you know, that was the first enclosed mall and blacks and whites went up there Uh because the neighborhood was in transition. Before it was a shopping center... Mondawmin was a private estate named after a Native American maize or corn deity. It belonged to the family of Alex Brown, the founder of the country's first investment bank. And at 48 acres, it was the largest piece of undeveloped land in the city. The family leased the land in 1955 to a local development visionary, James Rouse. Rouse had a plan to build something that was seldom heard of, an urban retail hub, dozens of stores housed together encouraging families to browse among all of them and to spend unprecedented amounts of money at once. 
Mondawmin Center opened the following year, 1956, as an open-air mall. It was enclosed in 1963 and renamed Mondawmin Mall, becoming the first enclosed mall in the country. I'm thinking it might have even been a little better because we had Sears department store over there and that was nice. And we had two grocery stores, Pantry Pride and Pen Fruit. Um, so you had a choice. We walked the street adjacent to the mall, Tioga Parkway, in hopes of finding someone who remembered Mondalman's early days. We found Ms. Olivia Bannister standing on a front porch talking to her neighbors. She's lived on Tioga Parkway since she was 12 years old. She can remember when the mall opened. My girlfriends and I, we used to walk over to Mondalman almost every day. They had nice little restaurants and places, you know, eating places where you could hang out. It was, to me, a much nicer place. The typical way that you developed a shopping center back in those days was that you had to have an anchor. Sears was the anchor. And then there would be other stores, smaller stores, that would be created out of that. So Mondaman was not just a place to go shop, but Mondaman also created, during the 60s, 70s, 80s, on up the nail, Madama created some significant African-American entrepreneurs. This is Mr. Daniel P. Henson, president of Henson Development Corporation. Mr. Henson is from West Baltimore and was an early and frequent visitor of the mall in its early days. Herb Brown, you know, when people were looking to travel, it wasn't necessarily me, but black doctors and lawyers and whatever who had cash looking to travel, they would go to Herb Brown's place in Mondawmin. My best friend worked for Maryland National Bank, a big deal when he was named the manager of the Maryland National Bank in Mondawmin. Uh, you know, I remember my first car that I bought was financed with a loan made from the Maryland National Bank in Mondawmin. Um, there were, it was the center of life for a very long time for African-Americans in, uh, in West Baltimore and to some extent to East Baltimore. Mr. Anthony Hawkins also recalls growing up near Mondawmin, just four blocks away. Some of the stores, I remember some of the stores in there were segregated, wouldn't serve you in Mondawmin, if you can believe that. Mr. Hawkins would go on to work with James Rouse for over 30 years and was at the forefront of Mondawmin's redevelopment during the 1970s and 80s. I asked Mr. Hawkins if he remembered which stores were segregated. You knew after you walked in that you were not invited to be there. One was the Chinese restaurant, which I found very amusing. And Mr. Rouse himself had to tell that guy when we took the center over that no integrate, no lease. As we learned earlier, Mondawmin was built at the center of a neighborhood in transition. It opened 12 years before the 1968 riots. And during that time, the mall managed to fully integrate, undergo white flight, and become an overwhelmingly black shopping complex. Sears left as a result, leaving the mall without an anchor store, and its profitability began to falter. We had the financing on Mondawmin, but we didn't own it. And this was 1975, I think it was. Um, we walked the center and he asked a bunch of us, can we make this center work? Is this a viable center for us to purchase? We've been financing it for all these years for the Brown family, put up the money and all that, but didn't own it. And he finally turned around to me and said, what do you think? Can you do it? I said, absolutely. Are you kidding me? This is the best located center in the state. And when you think about it, it is that. 
when you stand in Mont Diamond and look to your west, you've got to go all the way out to Route 40 for a shopping district. It's out of the Westfield and that kind of... You look north, you don't have anything other than uh, the Town Road Plaza, which was failing. And we could have put it out of business, which we were intended to do, but Schmoke asked me not to do that. If you look east, you've got to go all the way over to almost East Point Plaza. And if you look south, I don't know of anything. You've got to go to Glen Burnie. So in terms of the number of people, there's almost, almost 600,000 people. That, that is a part of its immediate market. And so I said to him, look, if we apply the science that we know of shopping centers to this center, it's a home run. And it was, in large part owing to Mondalman customers' cash economy. But convincing retailers of that has always been a pretty hard sell. Because Mondalman is located in a predominantly black community, the major retailers throughout this country were hesitant to come to Mondalman because in their minds they perceive of it as a problem. I was shopping for a suit the other day and walked into the department store. I can't tell you how many presidents of organizations I've sat in front of and said, the problem is you don't understand this community. So get your ass in the car, come with me, and I will show you this community because it doesn't show up on paper, but it shows up in cash. They didn't realize that this is a predominantly cash environment. We do $18 million in tennis shoes a year. You show me another seller that does $18 million in tennis shoes. Mr. Hawkins attributes the mall's revitalization in the late 70s and early 80s to the addition of social services and government offices inside the mall. They partnered with companies to which customers needed to pay monthly household bills, like gas and electric and landline telephone companies. There were so many people in that store, we had to expand it the second month it was open. Thousands of people coming in to pay because this is a service that they didn't have before. It was phenomenal, numbers you can't believe, thousands and thousands of people. So whenever I showed that to people who were really smart retailers, they said, we would never have known this. I said, that's why I want you to come here. Mr. Hawkins says the addition of those social services and government offices were the brainchild of Mr. William Willie Adams, a former numbers runner who amassed enough wealth to break into real estate. What was used to be Sears, and when Sears went out, uh, that department store space sat vacant for years. And Mr. Adams had the wherewithal and the intelligence to buy that building and had the relationships with the state and the city governance to be able to bring all of those social services right to the hub of our community. Mr. Adams also had a much longer, lesser-known history with Mondalman, according to Mr. Henson. It turns out that Willie Adams and uh, Jim Rouse were almost the same age. And so I sat in meetings with them as the only other person in the room. So I'm talking about in the, in the 90s, the late 90s, and they were talking about the 50s, and they were both in their 80s. And Jim had totally forgotten his nickel and dime history of putting together the parcels to create Mondaman. Willie never forgot. 
Mr. Henson says that Mr. Adams began buying real estate there in 1950, long before Rouse built his mall. Jim Rouse, looking at this as a greater good, got the city council to pass eminent domain ordinances, which allowed them to take these properties for a price from owners. Well, the owner that he was taking the properties from was Willie. Will, Willie had plans to do a shopping center himself. Now, it wouldn't have been Mondaman, he admitted. It wouldn't have been Mondaman, but it, was, it would have been his. And so Willie learned from his experience in the 50s that you needed political juice if you're gonna be a successful developer. You needed to be friends with politicians. And so Jim Rouse was friends with politicians back in the 50s. He took Willie's land. Willie later then found that the best purpose for the old Sears building was government offices. Things went along well for some time, but the crime surges that hit all over Baltimore City in the 1990s also hit Mondawmin. The mall's perhaps unfair reputation for fights, shootings, and theft began to precede it. This, coupled with the neighborhood's favoring of other malls in the suburbs, left Mondawmin in need of another major overhaul, and Mr. Hawkins worked hard to entice big-name, national retailers back to the community, including the first Target to be built in Baltimore City in 2008. And I said to the people at the time, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that we will bring in a market that you've never known at Mondawmin. I said, I'll tell you why. You can walk six blocks from here and you'll be in Bolton Hill. There is a middle class and upper middle class community seven blocks from here that doesn't have any services. And Reservoir Hill. And, and Reservoir Hill, thank you. Mm-hmm. That has no services. They need all of this, and I guarantee you, if we do this right, and they feel safe coming here, and they will, you got yourself a brand new market right here in the middle of the city. And that's exactly what happens. That's one of Target's better stores, by the way. Did you know that? Now you go back there and you get that peep and let me sign on the dotted line. And I'll make sure I get all my payments in right on time. Now that we've heard the perspectives of the mall's developers, it's time to take you inside present-day Mondawmin. Up next, you'll hear a different side of the story from some of the oldest businesses left inside Mondawmin Mall. Then the man, he come back, he say, I'm sorry, my man, but you, uh... You could it didn't go through. Why, what you mean? You're listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Slow, I got, it's Freddie Gray week. You know, kind of sensitive in the mall, so. So we just tried to. You made that week up, you? You just created that week? No, it's just, you know. What y'all got mics for? Hidden just off one of the main drags on the entrance level, there's a store filled with rows and rows of hair. We walked in during one of our recent visits to Mondalman Mall, in part because the place looked like it predated a lot of the glossier chain retail stores lining the longer main corridors. 
My name is Hosa Anthony from Mondami Mall. I'm a wig stylist. Been here over maybe over 20 years. And in the mall, when I first started working here, it's always been you have the good days and the bad days with the mall. You know, it has over the years. We have seen it grow, and it's still growing. It's going to always grow. But we have those people that come in sometimes, you know, and they kind of like make the mall look bad. But there's only a handful of people, and they come and go. So this store been here this, in this mall for 40-some years now. So, you know, Modern Wigs at Mondam is a really nice yes, history. <laughs> While we interviewed Hosa, the store manager, Mrs. Hong, came out to introduce herself. She's been there for over 40 years. Hosa helped her translate. My store like it. So the other customer like it. My store. She's a lot of people come here from from the county, different places to come to Mondarmin Mall because they know there's a wig store in Mondarmin Mall. We want to continue on keeping this wig store here in Mondarmin Mall. Over 40 some years, we want 40 more years 45 here. 45 now. 45, yeah. Modern Wigs relies a lot on its older clientele, longtime customers with whom employees have established a rapport. Those relationships have proven invaluable in the years since last April's unrest. One day, and the lady said that um, she's a regular customer. She know business been slow. She just came and gave my boss twenty-five dollars for some reason. I was like, you don't have to. She said, you don't have to. She said, no, I want to do it because I've been your customer for a long time, and I know business slow now. And it just made us, you know, it made us feel so warm inside. She didn't have to do that, but she did that, and that was really nice of a customer thinking about the store when it's slow. Uh, my name is Marvin McDowell. I'm a master barber here at Esquire Barbershop in Mondawmin Mall. Been here for over 30 years. Mr. McDowell told us that Esquire Barbershop was one of the mall's earliest black small businesses. To our right, the shop's cash register attests to the age of the place. It's an antique four-drawer model. Chicken George. Remember Chicken George? Uh, white coffee pot. Uh, it just was so many stores that was here that's really not in business now. Hey, how you doing? Well, some of was sort of like mom and pop businesses, you know, and, and right now, it's not like that because if you don't have a big corporate corporation behind you, it's hard to get into a mall like this. I asked if anyone famous had ever had their hair cut here. Yeah, you got somebody famous here working here, me. <laughs> because I had the feeling that Mr. McDowell was only half joking and that I'd unwittingly stumbled into an interview with a celebrity, I later looked him up. Marvin McDowell is a former two-time Maryland welterweight champ. He won the South Atlantic Amateur Championship seven times. He's in the Maryland Boxing Hall of Fame. This is a popular African-American mall, and you know a lot of people just want to come and see it. You know, and when they come here and find out there's a African-American barber shop, they come down there and get that get that good cut. Mr. Alexander Wilson, another master barber at Esquire Barbershop, agrees. He's worked at the barbershop for 25 years. I asked him about some of his memories. Had he known the late Mr. Willie Adams, for instance? Yes, as a matter of fact, Marvin used to cut, um, Marvin used to cut Mr. Adams' hair. He cut, he cut his hair for years, for about 20 years, I believe. 
I asked Mr. Wilson about other memorable experiences he may have had at Mondawmin, and his answer really drove home how close-knit a cohort a small business can cultivate. I don't, uh, we recently lost a uh, good friend of ours that was here, you know, with us, um, you know, 20, 30 years, and um, we recently lost him. Uh, I, I miss him a lot, you know. Um, name was Ernest Goodman. You know, uh, he died in um, August the 6th, August the 5th here in the mall. She had a heart attack. So. Despite last year's unrest at Mondawmin, which Mr. Wilson believes stemmed from kids' frustration with being unable to get home from the mall after the metro system shut down, he thinks the mall will always continue to thrive, but not for reasons rooted in altruism or community building. This particular mall, out of all the malls that they have, you know, um, makes more money than all of them, you know, because of uh, its cash money, you know. And where there's poverty in the area, those are the people that spend the most money because they don't know how to spend money. So. Up next, we'll talk to students, neighbors, and others who vividly remember where they were in April of last year when Mondawmin Mall became a powder keg and a national headline. You've been listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. No, I wasn't. I was at Druid Hill Park walking my dog, and several girlfriends of mine called me and said, are you home, girl? Because I did not know what was going on. And it was so nice and peaceful. I was wondering why the park was so quiet that day until we left. We left at about 4, and... Police officers were everywhere, and they were insane. They were really insane. I heard about it. I was actually, when I heard about it, I was at school still. And, you know, everybody's talking about it. They're going to hit up Mondawmin. Actually, it was a whole list of malls they were going to hit up originally. And I was like, why are they doing all that? And I didn't understand what was happening at first. I just heard it everywhere, and it was all over social media. Everybody was just going crazy. They canceled all the after-school activities at Poly. So a bunch of people were like, I don't know, they were just, they just didn't know what was going on. The lady that works in the office, she went around in classrooms like, did you get that picture? Let me see the picture. And we're all like, what? Like, is this real? Because everybody just started going crazy. And then the principal came into classrooms because we don't have, we didn't have intercoms at that moment. Uh, she came in the classrooms and was like, do not go near Mondawmin Mall. If we catch you near Mondawmin Mall, you will be suspended and things like that. She was just telling us like simple things to where like we're not going to be able to, you know, travel towards Mondawmin Mall. And if the 22 comes because the 22 goes to Mondawmin, we're not going to be able to get dropped off at Mondawmin Mall if we live near there. So she was just telling us different things. And that's how it really like hit me that this is really happening. We spoke with two students from Wide Angle Youth Media, a nonprofit organization that provides media education programs to young people in Baltimore City. As high school producers in the Mentoring Video Project, Kayla Hall and Nigeria Randolph contributed to a year-long video and photography campaign that will be unveiled on April 27th. The project commemorates various reflections on the year since the Baltimore Uprising. You can share your own stories from this past year by using the hashtag ThisIsBaltimore and learn more at WideAngleMedia.org. I think the community itself was just, it was affected as a whole because it was just so much at once. 
and the kids I don't think they realized like I don't think they realized the aftermath of what they were gonna do because that really like put a dent in their communities like their own communities where they shop where they you know go buy things with their families and stuff it got a little out of hand but I'm not all the way disappointed because my city stood up for something that is really important to them we were shown as like horrible people that day and it wasn't I'm not gonna say it wasn't as bad as people as like news showed it but we're not like not the entire Baltimore city was like that that day there were people trying to you know continue to peaceful things and it just got a little out of hand so someone innocent died and we're we're gonna stand up like somebody's gonna stand up and it stood up to the most extreme extent that day it's funny like I always felt that it was an undeserved reputation um because and I know black folks who you know have told me years ago oh Mondamin I don't go there you know I mean these are people that lived in parts of East Baltimore where you could have a body in your yard you know and so that that perception is so strong um and like I said coming from where I come from I'm like wow this is a mall in a black community (laughs) Dominique Stevenson is an activist and nonprofit program director who lives very close to the mall. Even when when the stuff went down, I mean, people might not like me to say this, but I don't care. That was like the politest looting I've ever seen. It looked like Christmas Eve. It was not like totally wild and off the chain. And the, the interesting thing is the police had been there earlier and they left it, you know, and then the media was showing stuff. And I think that... People saw it on the media and more people came out. But I feel like to some degree, some of those businesses have been looting this community for years and people saw an opportunity for payback. Yeah, well, I'm actually a National Guardsman, so during the upheaval, I was actually at work. I worked for the district court system and I was in the break room watching kids throw rocks at police officers and thinking to myself, okay, that will just be what it is. And then think about 6, 30, 7 o'clock that night, I got standby orders saying that we were going to mobilize. And then I think the day after we moved in and actually spent like four days sleeping on that parking lot. This is David Marshall Wright, who we met while he waited to get his hair cut at Esquire Barbershop. In addition to his work, he's also a West Baltimore native whose mother owned two businesses at Mondalman when he was growing up, a check cashing place and an ice cream store. What was it like for him to police the mall where he spent so much time as a kid? Uh, It was different because when we got our uh, briefing about what we were going to be doing when we moved in and they told us what areas we were going to take over from what uh, police department or whether it's the state troopers and we got our orders, I was like, wow, this is going to be creepy. I mean, my family lives in this area for the most part. I mean, we don't live here any longer, but my family does. And I was thinking to myself, I'm getting ready to don full battle rattle, get my M4, hop on a striker and roll into the very neighborhood that I grew up in. I believe the military police were pulled in first. And then when the MPs were no longer enough, uh, I think we went from 750 to 1,500 and then 2,500. And at that point, they started pulling in infantry units like my own. And we got our briefings, we drew our weapons, and we jumped on our vehicles and came in. Was that level of police and military presence really necessary, we wondered? I can answer the question personally. I cannot answer this question as a representative of the United States military or the state government or the Maryland Army National Guard. But personally, I do believe so. It was necessary. I believe the mayor was, quote unquote, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this. She was very soft in her response to the initial issue, which was children throwing rocks at police officers. And when you give folks an inch, they'll take a mile. 
So it went from children throwing rocks at police officers to a building being burned, from a building being burned to there being massive looting, destruction, and burning across the city, not just here in West Baltimore. A lot of people, they just get caught up on that CVS down at Penn North. That was a flashpoint for issues that took place all across the city. But no, uh, the response was a little soft, in my opinion, even once the National Guard was brought in. It should have been a thing of you go in fast and strong, you defend property, lives, and you defend people's well-being. To be, yes, kids were throwing bricks, but there was footage of police officers throwing bricks at the children, too. So there's two sides to everything. There were two sides to what happened last year. People just need to stop listening to what the news say when they're trying to make us look bad and listen to the youth more. We have the most intelligent, coolest, talented youth ever, and people are looking down on us because of what happened last spring. Just as when it opened in the late 1950s, Mondawmin is now serving a community in transition, but the migration is inverted. White families are flocking to, not fleeing from. And the mall itself is more than willing to accommodate its new clientele, even if it means edging out many of its beloved smaller businesses. And in the years since the Baltimore uprising, Mondawmin seems only to have redoubled its commitment to safety, shoring up security and police presence both inside and outside the mall. Here's hoping the long-standing members of the community that have supported it for decades will still be able to find what they need there. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Wincote Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore The Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos and video from Mondawmint Mall and the people you just heard talking about it, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. In our next episode, join us as we travel to Hamden, a former working-class mill town experiencing an uneasy influx of upscale hipsters. <laughs>